Check out episode 31 to hear from the CEO of one of the largest promotional companies in North America as he tells us all about his supply chain and their commitment to compliance and product safety. This is Two Babes Talk Supply Chain, where we interview the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, changes in the industry, and hot topics in supply chain. We answer all your questions and put sexy into supply chain. We are your hosts, Sarah and Nick. Welcome back to all of our Two Babes listeners. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you like what you hear, show us some love by writing us a review. We would love to hear from you. Coming up, we have Simon Eagle joining us all the way from the UK. Thank you, Simon, for staying up for us to talk to us about his new book and the what, why, and how of demand-driven supply chain transformation. Simon Eagle is an endorsed instructor with the Demand Driven Institute and advises companies on how they can transform their supply chain and operations performance through the adoption of demand driven supply chain management in place of their legacy and very ineffective forecast push MRP process. Simon is based in the UK and works across the whole of Europe. He has over 20 years experience working in a broad range of supply chain management roles in the UK and Scandinavia and has worked in industries as diverse as life sciences and fresh produce. So hey Simon, appreciate you joining us. It's a pretty heavy subject today so let's get right into it. Hello Sarah, pleased to be with you. Awesome, awesome. So why don't you start off by explaining to us, you know, what exactly is demand-driven supply chain management and what does that mean for business? So demand-driven supply chain management is a method of moving materials through factories, through distribution warehouses, from suppliers to customers and doing it in such a way that you uh, reduce your inventory levels by up to 50% while still meeting service levels and also requiring a significantly less production capacity. Um, and as the name says, it's about being driven by demand in contrast to the way most people and most companies currently operate their supply chains, which is driving their material flow with a forecast. So it's demand-driven, not forecast-driven. All right. Well, since you're saying about forecast, um, why should we forecast, and what exactly is forecasting, uh, between the, or the difference between forecasting and transformation? Okay. Well, most companies... Um, they generate forecasts of what they think they're going to sell in the, uh, in the near future. And they use those forecasts along with information about what they've already got in their warehouses and what they've already started to make to decide what they're going to make next. So forecasts are always wrong by their very nature. Almost like um, weather. And companies that think they're going to get world-class forecast accuracy performance, they're sort of achieving about 80%, which is quite unusual. Um, but the point about forecast accuracy of, say, 80%, which sounds quite good, 
is that it's only being achieved because they get good forecast accuracy on the very high volume, low variability products. Most of their products in their portfolio are getting accuracies of less than 60 or 50%. So the consequence of driving replenishment through with, uh, with accurate, inaccurate forecasts of that nature is they make... They make the wrong stuff at the wrong time and send it to the wrong places and inevitably get, um, get service problems as a consequence. Um, now, what they then do, because um, they obviously don't want service problems, is they chop and change their schedules. So they stop making A to make B because B is going to go out of stock. And every time they do that, they're asking their people in their factories to stop making A and start making B, which is generating frustration and stress and it's wasting capacity because changeovers take time um, and of course the product that they've stopped making is now going to arrive late because they stopped making it so they then have a problem with that uh, particular problem uh, product as well and over time what happens is that they chop and change all their schedules all their lead times get longer and longer um, and they end up effectively with service issues still, possibly, um, but certainly what they end up with is using far too much change over time because of all those schedule interruptions, which is loss of capacity, excessively long lead times because they change their planning parameters and their MRP systems, um, and uh, excessive levels of stock, and still they have service problems, and it's all because they are using those forecasts to drive replenishment execution now we're not saying that companies shouldn't forecast they should they need to forecast in order to plan their capacities for their financial forecasting and uh, and for all that sort of good stuff but they don't need to be using their item level forecast to drive execution because if they do they're going to make the wrong stuff at the wrong time now, a lot of people think that this demand-driven process really means make-to-order. Now, of course, you can't do make-to-order if you're selling baked beans or uh, pills and tablets and things like that because customers want to buy it from you and get immediate delivery. But demand-driven isn't just make-to-order. It is a replacement for the forecast-driven process that is being used in virtually all all fast-moving consumer goods, life science, and distribution companies. So you still continue to hold stock in your warehouse, but you don't need to hold so much. And you replenish that stock in a, with a make-to-replace process. Effectively, every time you come round to make a product, which you're making in a fixed and stable sequence and cycle, you just top up what's been sold. And you do that for all of your products. Now, the other thing that you're doing when you're doing demand-driven is you're doing that for your finished goods, but you're also doing it for your raw materials. And you might be doing it for some sub-assembly between the raw materials and the finished goods. So effectively, your manufacturing and your distribution is composed of multiple cycles, which are stable and predictable, which is always liked by people in operations, topping up the downstream stock uh, position. Now, that's very unlike uh, a forecast push process where they, uh, 
they uh, try to make everything based upon the forecast um, and, as I say, end up with these, with these problems. So demand-driven is, 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 is really all about positioning inventories in the supply chain in the right places, sizing those inventories in line with demand, and then executing in line with demand using a make-to-replace or ship-to-replace process. Um, it's very easy. It, it, it sort of lets the supply chain operate um, like water going down a hill. You don't tell water how to flow down a hill. You just let it go. And it's exactly the same with the way supply chains ought to run. You simply replace what's been ordered. Um, so whereas in a, in a, with a stream going down downhill, it's gravity that's pulling it down. And with a supply chain, it should be demand that pulls items through the supply chain. So I have a question for you. Um, how does that affect shipping costs? Because if you have to go overseas to buy your stock, um, usually there's a minimum requirement or you know, it, it makes, it's more cost effective to buy more product. But when you're just doing a replenishment model of what you've sold, how does that affect, you know, that part of the supply chain and the costs associated with that? Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, what we're not trying to do with this process is to change your minimum order quantities. Um, we're not even trying to change your planning lead times to start with. We're just changing the demand signal from that which is wrong, which is the forecast, to that which is correct, which is actual demand. Um, so if you are having to buy from a long way away in large quantities, you continue to do that. Um, that's no problem. But the, the timing of your orders will change and they will become the correct timing of, uh, of um, orders instead of the incorrect timing. Right. So okay. it makes no change at all to your, to your costs of distribution and your costs of, say, buying raw materials from overseas. It just changes the timing and makes it correct um, right? Okay. and, uh, you know, puts it in line with what you're actually going to need. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, you're ordering less often, I guess, if, if you follow No, this no, model. you continue to order with the same sort of uh, frequency depending upon the rate of sale. If you sell more, you get in more. If you sell less, you get in less. Yeah. Um, the trouble with forecasts is, as I say, is they're always wrong. And a lot of the time your forecasts are very optimistic because salespeople are putting in um, um, high numbers because they're naturally optimistic people or they're putting in low numbers because they want to get big bonuses and they want to beat them. So um, the, uh, the forecasts are always wrong, which, which drives you to get in the wrong stuff at the wrong time if you're using those inaccurate forecasts to drive replenishment. Right. So all we're saying is stop using the forecast to drive replenishment be demand-driven instead. And when companies adopt this process, um, they find that they do start to hit their service levels. They don't need nearly as much inventory. They can start to reduce their planning lead times. Um, and um, their costs of manufacture go down um, because they don't need to use so much capacity, which means, of course, that uh, they can have capex avoidance. So it's a huge... It, the reason it's called transformational is because it is clearly 
you know, very transformational in terms of your operations and supply chain um, performance. Um, and the other transformational thing is upon the role of the planner. They cease to spend 90% of their time expediting and uh, firefighting and dealing with all these, uh, these problems um, because all they have to do is to set the parameters correctly, you know, the inventory stock targets, and allow the supply chain to respond as demand comes through. So they can go off and do much more sort of value-add things like, uh, I don't know, like collaboration with, uh, with some of their customers and some of their suppliers. They can focus on sales and operations planning, which is an incredibly important uh, supportive process. Um, and they can deal with what we call event management, you know, those sort of big promotions that are going to blow those inventory buffers, um, seasonality and things like that. These become the things that the planners focus upon along with the demand planners to ensure that, um, you know, these events that are known about in the future are managed in an active and successful manner. Um, they can't usually do that sort of thing because everything is in crisis. All the forecasts are wrong. They're making all the wrong stuff, and they spend all the time expediting. That stops, so they can then focus their their time upon the value-add activities, such as those that I mentioned, and, of course, um, new product launches as well. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's kind of a mindset shift, really. So let's get into variability. Um, how does variability affect forecasting, and what can be done to minimize variability? Yeah, I'll answer that in a minute, Sarah, but you just said for something very interesting, you said it's a mindset change. It is a huge mindset change. Uh, it's a huge mindset for planners because they are going to stop doing all this expediting and they're going to uh, be a lot more strategic. So some planners will love that. Some planners uh, might not. Um, but the bigger challenge, actually, is getting their bosses and their leaders to understand that this is how supply chains should be run and um, to buy into this, this new way of working. Um, and, you know, that can be something of a barrier because it is somewhat counterintuitive. Um, and if your bosses don't get it, of course, there's no chance of it being introduced into the business. So education um, is, is very important to try to introduce this new way um, of working. Yeah, I'm going to jump in there before you, before you talk about variability. So just so our audience knows, our sponsor, IceCorp Logistics, if you go to IceCorpLogistics.com, in the Learning Center under Educational Partners, the Demand Driven Institute has given um, their community as well as ours a discount on any of the uh, educational uh, programs that they have as well if you're interested. Yeah, the Demand Driven Institute have been absolutely fantastic um, in the educational area. They've developed um, a couple of uh, courses, the Certificate of Demand Driven Planning and Certificate of Demand Driven Leadership. Um, they run courses um, online and also through their affiliates, of which there's quite a few now across the world, which is all designed to bring people on board for this way of working. Um, and they've done a fantastic job. That's Chad Smith and Carol Patak, and they've also written their own books, which are well worth um, getting hold of. Um, I, think it's, uh, I think it's very imp important to say that this isn't a completely new way of working, and it's not at all black box. It's not some 
whizzy computer thing that does things that's weird. This is really just um, enterprise-wide pull. Um, it's really part of the lean tool set. Um, but whereas lean pull has been associated mostly with visual management inside factories, what demand driven is all about is allowing companies to do this right across their complex networks using software to support the process. You can't do this without software across complex networks, and that software is now available. And um, the Demand Driven Institute are spending their time educating the world on this. They have a number of, there are a number of companies who do the software, and the software that does genuinely support this process is endorsed by the Demand Driven Institute. Simon, I'm gonna... looking at their website to learn more about this and, uh, and see the sort of softwares um, that are available. Um, so, yeah, you were talking about variability, Sarah. What was the question again? We got a bit diverted there. Well, okay, so um, how does variability affect forecasting and what can be done to minimize it? Yeah, so variability of demand... Um, makes forecasting very, very difficult. The more variable is demand, the more inaccurate your forecast is going to be. Um, and there's something called the central limit theorem or the law of big numbers, which says that um, one's ability to forecast accurately um, on big numbers is usually much greater than with small numbers. Um, you know, big numbers do not vary as much um, over a time period as, as smaller numbers do. So, for instance, um, if, you've got, uh, if you've got a, num a number pattern saying 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, you know, that's 50% up, 50% down um, from the average, or thereabouts anyway. But if, you've got a, uh, if your numbers are about 100, and it's 101, 99, 101, 99, of course, percentage-wise, it's much, much smaller. So, in general... The smaller the number range, the more inaccurate your fork, the, the greater the variability, and the greater the variability, the more inaccurate your forecasts are going to be. So there's not a lot you can do about that at the end of the day, and a lot of companies spend an inordinate amount of time trying to improve their forecast accuracy. Um, they spend a lot of time doing it uh, with their sort of marketing colleagues, and frankly, marketing colleagues come in with what is called marketing intelligence, and actually, a lot of studies have shown that marketing intelligence actually tends to make the forecast less accurate, not more accurate. Be that as it may, if the forecasts are inaccurate, you're going to be driving replenishment of the wrong stuff at the wrong time. So the whole point about supply chains is that they should be responding autonomously to what's actually happening. And that's what the demand-driven process does. As you sell more, you make more. As you sell less, you make less. That's why it's called, called demand-driven. Um, now, the other problem with variability, if you take that variability in the marketplace and effectively blow it into the supply chain um, using a forecast push process, that's generating all these variability buffers that I was referring to earlier on. So if you're making the wrong stuff and you're getting service issues, what happens is that you have to start interrupting your schedules to start making the right stuff. That wastes capacity. That's one of the buffers. It also increases lead time, so that's your time buffer. 
Um, and it also means that you have to uh, put more inventory at the front end, perhaps, to, so, to, say, to stop this happening again. That's your inventory buffer. So there's three buffers to inventory. They are time, capacity, and inventory. And the greater the variability that you introduce into your supply chain, the greater those buffers are going to be. So if you become demand-driven, you reduce that variability. One way you reduce it is because you're no longer injecting variability with your inaccurate forecast. The second reason you reduce your variability is because you're positioning buffer position, uh, locations through the supply chain in the right places. Now, what that means is natural process variability, because things you know, do go wrong in factories. Um, you know, lead times aren't always fixed. In fact, the, uh, the, the greater the capacity utilization, the more likely it is that lead times are going to vary. But if you put inventory buffers in the supply chain, it dampens that variability. So, by, it's, and it's a bit strange this, but by put, putting, deliberately putting inventory buffers into the supply chain and dampening down the variability, as well as actually driving the supply chain with real demand and not an accurate forecast, you end up hitting your service levels with considerably less inventory than you would do otherwise. And as I said earlier on, companies that go down this route um, are able eventually to reduce their inventories by up to 50% because um, they can uh, they, they, they stop making too much of the wrong stuff, too little of the right stuff. They reduce their lead times. Um, they need far less variability buffer. Um, and, you know, eventually they have so much spare capacity as a consequence of this. And I've seen companies actually knock off third shifts as a consequence of this um, and even, you know, get down to well below two shifts. They can perhaps use some of that spare capacity to do quicker changeovers or, or more frequent changeovers. Um, and that, of course, means that they have lower batch sizes, which allows them to reduce inventory even more. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that, that's it, really. It sounds very simple, um, and it is very simple. It's just that it's a bit counterintuitive because people say, how can that possibly work with the demand variability that we have? And the answer is, well, if you've got a huge amount of demand variability, your forecasts are going to be so much, are so bad, that's why you've got so many problems. So the greater your demand variability, the greater the argument for becoming demand-driven. And if you've got lots of demand variability, you'll just buffer it, um, and you'll still be meeting your service levels with far less inventory than you, than you currently have. So that's the problem, I think. So I think it's not, I, I don't think it at all, I know. This is the problem with uh, supply chains. Too much variability causes a generation of very costly buffer. Um, what you want is flow, and uh, that's what you're doing with demand-driven. So, Simon, do you, with your experience, do you notice any trends that um, some, I, I guess, companies are more using the my or demand-driven supply chain to the other ones that are still forecasting? Like, is there any industry that's kind of taken the leap um, before any other company kind of started this? Um, I don't think you can really talk about industry types. Um, I mean, it, I think those companies with factories are, tend to be more interested in, in pure distribution companies because 
taking the variability out of their factories is an enormously beneficial thing to do. You know, factories are very expensive, and if you're not using them properly and you're not getting the right levels of capacity utilisation, that's very costly. So manufacturing tends to be more interested this, in this at the moment than pure distribution companies. Now, you would have thought also that perhaps those companies with thinner, thinner margins would be more interested in this, um, so companies that, you know, food companies, CPG companies, consumer packaged goods companies, and some of them are very interested in this. But, you know, even, when I say even, a, a number of companies with very big margins, because they spend all their money on research and development like life science, um, some of them are very noted uh, um, 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 pioneers in this area. So it's not really to do with... It's not really to do with industry sector. It's more to do, it's, it's mainly manufacturing companies, and I think it's more the type of company. Um, so it really, the companies that really get into this early are those that are led by, um, I guess, leaders who are open-minded and interested and have a, and have a certain amount of... Uh, expertise i guess in uh, supply chain management is there one um, and are willing to try things sorry sarah no i was just going to ask you is there a particular company that comes to mind that's that's really adopting these concepts? yes well um yeah i mean so, uh, one of the very major cpg companies has uh, has trialed this and has trialed it very successfully um they're not American, they're sort of British-Dutch. Um, uh, yeah, very well-known company. Um, a pharmaceutical, one of the major pharmaceutical companies that used to be Swiss-British but is now, I'm not sure what they are, to be honest, these days, but they've they got a big plant in Britain. Um, they're going down this route. Um, so it's one of the big Swiss pharmaceutical companies. Um, they're, they're one of the leading Swiss companies. Um, there's an Irish pharmaceutical company that I know of that's going down this road. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's a whole host of them. Um, the De Demand Driven Institute has got a whole bunch of case studies on its, uh, on its website, which are worth looking at, um, because they are, they sort of demonstrate a that you know there's a number of companies that are doing this and b they also sort of share their experiences and learnings on the road um, towards successful implementation. But going back to your earlier question, the sort of companies that do this sort of thing are those where leadership is is good at supply chain management and are open-minded. I think something else that helps is probably if a company's got a major challenge, a major problem. Um, and then the sort of conservatism disappears because, um, well, you know, we've got, we've got to try something and this sounds good. So that can sometimes be an aid. Um, I think another factor that helps companies adopt this process is if, they're, is, is if they have new leadership because sometimes, you know, if you've had very, um, very traditional leadership for very many years, um, Certain companies, they have leadership that are a bit conservative, and as a consequence of that, they don't want to change. They don't want to perhaps sort of admit they've been doing the wrong thing for so long. So it's, it's good if you've got new leadership in who haven't got any baggage in that context. 
it also helps, I think, also if uh, companies are sort of doing a strategic review of supply chain management and operations and possibly their IT systems. Because um, if you've just installed the uh, newest, most expensive, shiny software and, uh, a, 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 and you put in a forecast push process, it's a little bit embarrassing to realize that you may have done the wrong thing. So those sort of companies tend to be a little bit more uh, conservative as well for, for obvious reasons, frankly. So, Simon, tell us a bit about your book. Well, my book. Uh, yeah, my book's called Demand-Driven Supply Chain Management, Transformational Performance Improvement, published by Kogan Page on April the 3rd. Um, and you can get a 20% discount if you go to uh, Camelot MC website, where, um, where, where, where it is... Uh, um, where it is uh, mentioned and uh, where you just fill in your details and you get a 20% discount, as I say. Um, now, the book itself is its really the first book that's been published about demand-driven that hasn't been written by Carol Patak and Chad Smith. Um, they've written a number of books, and they're all excellent. This one takes a different approach to the uh, the process, um, it explains its rationale using the ideas uh, behind uh, factory physics, um, which sounds complicated, but actually it's not. It's all about this thing uh, uh, around variability. And it's been written in such a way that you don't actually have to read it cover to cover. Um, it's, uh, it's got a number of, uh, well, quite a few sort of um, papers in it that uh, describe end-to-end the whole process but it presents it in many different ways um, with different allegories because this is so counterintuitive some people just don't get it so by by describing it in different ways um, and from different angles and different perspectives if you read two or three you're more likely to get it than just reading one that perhaps doesn't suit the way you think um, it also covers things like, um, you know, why we're not using demand-driven, why have we gone down the ro- wrong road for the last 30 years, 50 years or so, um, and it looks a little bit ahead um, into the future. So, it's, I mean, it, it, you know, it's a book, but you don't have to read the whole thing. You can get a lot of value out of it just by dipping it, dipping in um, at various uh, various sections. And after you've read it, you'll be thinking, why on earth? Did we ever go down the forecast push MRP route? It's crazy. And it is crazy, but the whole of industry is doing it, and a lot of software is sold on the back of it. And it is wrong, frankly. It is completely wrong. Forecast push MRP has had its day. Demand-driven really is starting to come in at an accelerating rate. Um, Some very well-known companies are trialing it and finding it successful. Um, and I think you'll find in 10 to 15 years, um, everybody will be doing it. And the, and the problem is, it's going to be really for those companies that don't get in first, because those that do will get competitive advantage, and those that don't will have serious competitive disadvantage. Um, it's, a, it's a genuine sort of paradigm shift that's going on. It's a very exciting time to be in, in supply chain management. And um, this sort of uh, new way of working is the most revolutionary thing to have come along, you know, for, for a very long time. So if, you, you know, if you're getting into supply chain management now, 
now is a good time because um, you're not going to end up as a planner spending all your time expediting because that sort of role is going to disappear over the next 10 years. Well, that sounds amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to take a look at your book. Um, and uh, the future for supply chain management just sounds just sounds exciting, especially when you take a look at the demand-driven side of things, the demand-driven transformation, um, et cetera, et cetera. So tell us, Simon, what's next for you? Um, Well, I'm very busy working with uh, um, a a consultancy um, company called Camelot. Uh, They're German-based, but they uh, operate in the Middle East. They operate through Europe and in the North America. And... um, Camelot's uh, great strength is they've been pioneers in this demand-driven way of working for a number of years. They are one of the Demand-Driven Institute's affiliates, and they have their own um, software that is compatible with the uh, with well SAP, frankly, and it is uh, it, it delivers this demand-driven way of working. Um, and you know, I'm very busy with them. Um, talking to companies about why this process is good for them and showing them you know, how to introduce it, how to pilot it, and how to roll it out. Um, and it's keeping us all very busy because you know, there's a lot of companies out there who are doing it wrong, and they are quickly realizing that when they hear about this way of working and wanting help in, in adopting it. So what am I going to be doing in 20 years' time? I'm not sure, but I'm pretty certain over the next uh, 10 years or so, I'm going to be very busy helping companies to transform themselves. Um, and um, for those that are sort of in the process of getting supply chain management educated, um, I think this is a really exciting time for them to be getting into supply chain management because um, you know you're, you're entering an area where big change is happening, but it's big change, big change for the good. Um, and that's uh, and that's that's an, so it's going to be an exciting place to be. Awesome, awesome. Well, we are excited to hear and and watch you grow with Camelot and uh, with the demand driven transformation and supply chain management. We're excited to, you know, see your book. I don't believe it's out yet, correct? Or it is? No, the book comes out on April the third. You can find it on Amazon. Um, as I say, if you go to the Camelot website, you can also get a 20% off discount. Okay. Uh, well, that's so, great. Um, yeah. So we're I urge you to do that. Um, all it can do, frankly, is allow you to hit your service levels, halve your inventory, and reduce your costs. Um, is there any reason not to? I can't think of one. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. That, awesome. Well, we're, we're really excited for your book to come out. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yep, it's been an absolute pleasure, Sarah and and Nick as well. And uh, I've heard a few of your uh, uh, a few of your podcasts. They're all very very good. So um, those that uh, haven't heard one yet, I uh, I think they ought to. And uh, good luck with it because I think you're doing a great job in uh, making supply chain management more appealing to the uh, to the younger generation. Well awesome. done. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Okay, Sarah, all the best. Cheers, Nick. Bye. Thank you, Chess. Okay, bye, Simon. Are you struggling to make the most out of your supply chain and keep your orders moving efficiently? 
IceCorp is your supply chain specialist, and they specialize in e-commerce, retail, and drop ship distribution. They will provide you with tailor-made solutions that will drive your business and sales forward. Get your free assessment. Visit them at icecorplogistics.com. Check out their learning center as they have some great free resources waiting for you. There you have it, listeners. Demand-driven forecasting and minimizing variability will help you with your supply chain planning and management. Next week, we are learning all about supply chain in startups with Katie, the founder of Girls Gosh. Remember to check out our website for free resources exclusively for you, our listeners. Simon was kind enough to give us a sneak peek into his new book, so check out that at the bottom of this episode. This episode was produced by Mike Mazurik. We are your host, Nick and Sarah. Thanks again, folks, for listening, and remember, ship happens.